Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever-Burgett, and I work with the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of The Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space, both online and in person, for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. This podcast and other expressions of the Academy ministry only exist because of generous donors like you. As the strange and revealing year of 2020 comes to a close, please give a gift of 25, 50, or any amount to ensure our work continues for many years to come. Visit us at academy.upperroom.org and click the orange donate button in the top right-hand corner to give a gift today. Today's conversation features Luther Smith, who is an ordained elder in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, longtime Academy faculty person, and a member of the Academy Advisory Board. Luther spent 35 years of his career as an activist, scholar, and professor at Candler School of Theology, and he is known to be an authority on the life and theology of Howard Thurman. Luther is Professor Emeritus of Church and Community at Candler, and his current research focuses on the writings and correspondence of Howard Thurman, advocacy on behalf of children, and a spirituality of hope. He is married to Helen Pearson Smith and lives in Stone Mountain, Georgia. They have four children and five grandchildren. Whether you know Luther and have had the honor of learning both from and with him, or today is your very first introduction to his life and work, you're in for a treat. Luther served as faculty at the first five-day academy I attended in 2014. And from that time on, he's been a friend and wisdom guide, a breath of fresh air, a beacon of hope. We gathered ourselves via Zoom in late summer to talk about everything from Howard Thurman to what keeps us grounded in these strange times, to his latest work on a spirituality of hope. As I record these opening remarks, it's the day after the presidential election here in the United States, when so many of us are grasping for some hope of change, when all of us are waiting on votes to be counted and the results to be clear. Hence, my conversation with Luther lands at the perfect time. And if you're anything like me, you might be trying to remember what activist and organizer Mariam Kaba says, hope is a discipline. And you might be fighting like hell this morning to practice it. Wherever you are, however you are, I hope the conversation with Luther offers you further insight, deeper inspiration, and abundant hope, even and especially in these strange, challenging yet hopeful times. Listen on, beloveds. Listen well, listen deep, listen wide. Luther, welcome to the Academy podcast, and it is such a gift to get to see your face. And I was thinking this morning as I was uh, preparing and taking some deep breaths that I am a really lucky person to get to talk with you as part of my work. So I'm so glad that you're here and that you're going to get to share some wisdom uh, and I know joy with us this morning. So I would love to start by hearing um, who and what you come from. 
And however mm. you want to answer that. <laughs> well, if we're talking about um, roots, uh, I feel very fortunate in terms of my family um, life. Um, growing up in a household where we were not only, I think, sustained in terms of shelter and food, but the kind of emotional um, spirit that just pervaded uh, the home. Um, I, I have a sister uh, who's five years older um, who loved me. <laughs> and uh, that, that turned out to be the case all the days that she lived. And uh, that's, that's also true for my parents. And uh, the nurturing that occurred was um, sustaining without in any way uh, being uh, suffocating uh, in, uh, in terms of the kind of attention parents will often give to matters of security. Um, I'm especially uh, thankful for the way in which my parents uh, opened my heart and mind to the social realities in which we lived. Uh, this occurred both in the home and also in our local church, such that uh, as black people living in a segregated uh, society, um, though the struggle in civil rights was something that I remember being exposed to in the, in the earliest days of my life, even before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was, I think, on the national stage. So at ages four and five, um, I have memories of parents being uh, very attentive to talking about what's happening socially. And uh, to what extent would presidential outcomes likely affect our well-being? And these were not just adult conversations. These were conversations that occurred uh, at our dinner table. Um, they were um, ones that when we did get a TV, uh, we were very attentive to what was happening there, uh, the kind of publications that came to our home, the sermons that came out of our church, um, the kind of conversations that they would have as adults with other adults when we would get together to celebrate uh, the festive days of the year. And it made no difference if it was Christmas or New Year's or Thanksgiving, uh, just about every gathering uh, had uh, at some point focused on the issue of what, what is happening in the nation with the issue of civil rights. And to have the experience of growing up, I think, in, the, in that atmosphere was formative in the most positive ways for me to give me both a sense of my personal identity uh, in the midst of that um, in terms of family and, and value and who I am as a child of God, as well as social identity. And uh, to understand how, in many ways, there's no separation of who I am personally from who I am socially. And, um, 
and to really be envisioning what it means to be a person of faith, uh, honoring both identities. So where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis. Um, I, uh, I, th- I think the two most important um, institutions for me were, as I mentioned, family and uh, our church, the uh, Lane Tabernacle Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. I, I called it my second family. And there were times when, you know, you get older and you're trying to decide how particular actions will have an effect upon uh, those who count in your life. Uh, you, you don't want to be an embarrassment in terms of having done something or said something that has repercussions of people being disappointed in you. Uh, there are times in which I think I, I felt uh, as concerned, if not more concerned, about that with my church family as I did <laughs> with, my, with my home family. And it it said something that it was important to me uh, in terms of formation and identity, as I've spoken, um, as well as important to me as, as my feeling some accountability to them. So I realize that's not the case with everyone, uh, but I certainly count that as being a, um, a real blessing for my own life. And that's not to say that... Um, I didn't have a critical perspective about the church because I certainly did. Uh, but it was also to value the church in a way in which those things that I understood to be um, problems with the church, um, its own embarrassments, uh, the complexity in the life of the church uh, were in no way disqualifying what I felt to also be the blessing of the church. What was church like when you were a kid? Mm. It uh, was uh, fascinating to me. Uh, So much of the character of the church depended on who was the minister at the time. And in the Methodist tradition, pastors get moved. But we are very fortunate to have pastors who stayed 10, 12, 15 years. And it was uh, quite... Um, a a challenge, I think, for many in the church to go, let's say, from a pastor who was very encouraging of emotional response and the kind of music that would bring that forth and the sermons and and the, the level of energy that would be poured into expression from the pulpit. Um, and then to go to a pastor for whom those were not what this pastor considered to be the um, necessarily his character, nor did he feel like it should be the character of the church. And, and to see a congregation uh, shift in those waves was um, understandable, at times very disappointing. Um, but there would be these moments when the very thing that in some way the new pastor had discouraged uh, emerged in the life of the congregation. It, it might have been a song that we had not heard in a long time. And when that song was sung, uh, 
the kind of expressions that came forth just um, moved throughout uh, the congregation in a way that was also moving to me. Uh, it, it gave me a sense of the diversity of what the church could be and um, how one expression was not really disqualifying the other as being formative, as being um, energizing. <laughs> um, so I felt that I, I was uh, discovering uh, a multiple, uh, the multiple ways in which uh, church life might be experienced and um, formative. And, and I feel very grateful for that. Were you always interested in questions of faith and theology, or was, is there a particular moment that that sort of awakened in you? I'm curious about that. Um, my parents were Sunday school teachers, and so was my sister. Mm -hmm. um, so I would see them preparing for lessons. And I think that conveyed to me the importance of um, study as a way to not just engage the teaching moment, but to be engaging um, the faith itself. Uh, to, you proclaim the faith by yourself being a student of the faith. And um, my, my parents could also... Uh, have debates around the dinner table uh, with the sermon that we heard <laughs> so that um, I, I grew up with an understanding that uh, just because the preacher said something in a particular way didn't necessarily uh, align with what we understood the faith itself to be saying. Right. And then as you're exposed to an increasing number of preachers, you you all the more uh, are realize how um, a word coming from, uh, quote, a voice of authority um, isn't necessarily a word that is uh, true to um, your, your own um, deepest understanding of who we're being called to be and, and what the scriptures mean and how we live them out. So I found myself um, with a profound appreciation for study, for debate, for mm. having the uh, authority to call authority into question. Um, my father uh, taught the Linton series class, must have been for two decades, and the kind of study he put into preparing that, it, it just drew large numbers of people every Wednesday for that study. And my father was not interested in simply stating to people the kind of thing that perhaps would draw forth from them an amen or some expression of, oh yes, I agree with that and align with that. But he did in that Lenten series, the same thing that he did in his Sunday school classes. And that is to identify those elements of our Christian faith that can be very challenging to what we, quote, want to believe, <laughs> uh, but perhaps uh, are not faithful to what the text is really saying to us and, and a way to live that out. Um, and I grew up with uh, admiration 
for that kind of integrity that he had as a teacher. And that kind of integrity uh, that he had in honoring, I think, uh, texts and faith and, and how the way in which we live, what we understand is uh, as essential to what we may be proclaiming about the faith itself. So I'm wondering, I've shared, of course, your bio and the intro and all of that, but what might you share with us that we wouldn't find on a website or on a piece of paper? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have, if, if I have a totem, and I do, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, turtles. I see behind you. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. They're in every room of my home. Ah. Multiple turtles. They're oh from all gosh. over the world. Um, and what spoke to me some uh, almost 50 years ago was this uh, card, a postcard that I saw. It had a picture of a turtle on it. And it had the saying, maybe I'm lucky to be going so slowly because I may be going in the wrong direction. Mm. And I thought, that explains my pace. <laughs> that, that it's, it, it was both the statement and then the image of the turtle that said to me, uh, okay, Luther, um, yeah, you, you don't need to be down on yourself for your pace. Um, you need to be really um, drawing upon the gift that it is offering you. And, you know, it's only later that you discover things like the way in which turtles are um, respected as in some sense carrying the world. And uh, mm -hmm. there are birth narratives related to turtles and turtles as sources of wisdom. Uh, but for me, it, it began with this matter of pace and, mm -hmm. Uh, how the the sort of deliberate um, how I'm constructed to be pace of the turtle is uh, something that I've honored to have, uh, I think, in my heart as well as um, in every room of my house. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I actually saw that when we started talking. You're turtle crossing sign behind you and uh. <laughs> um, the other turtles. And I thought, I really want to know about that. So I love that, that we went there. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, this is the Academy podcast. And so I'd love to hear more about how you came to be uh, faculty of the Academy. And of course, a long time now advisory board member. Um, so tell us about your journey to the Academy and with the Academy and why you stay like why mm. do you why do you keep hanging out with us mm. um i'm not um definite about how the invitation or why the invitation was extended to me but i was invited and i was uh intrigued by the description of the academy and what it um suggested about an extended time of study together, prayer together, uh, experiencing small group life together, uh, delving into uh, 
questions that often people are not even feeling the freedom to raise in the life of their own um, worshiping communities. Um, understanding something of the traditions of the church, the history of the church. Uh, I was intrigued by that. And so I said yes for the session that I was asked to teach. And in that experience, Claire, um, I found myself um, feeling that this, this is not about, for me, this is not just about what I'm giving in this time. It's what I'm also receiving through the testimonies of participants, the uh, willingness of people to give themselves to this kind of uh, rhythm of the day. And I felt it provided me an opportunity to have a different rhythm in my own life uh, with a community that was searching and discerning. Um, at the time, I was completing a book entitled um, Intimacy and Mission that focused on intentional communities and their practices. And I felt like the academy had many of the uh, rhythms and values uh, of these intentional communities that I also uh, valued. Uh, so to be part of academy life felt to me to be a you know just just a blessing in my own schedule. It it was more than a break. It it was entering into a, a different way of. Uh, being present, of uh, being in prayer, of uh, relating to persons, and to hearing the heart that um, I think we, we rarely have the chance to hear from, from persons who perhaps are not in our families or persons who are not um, you know, sort of lifelong friendships, but but to be in a community where people have come together out of uh, profound matters of faith, questioning faith, devoted to faith, uncertain about faith, just that whole range of uh, feelings about matters of faith. People who are coming out of family crisis, out of out of members of families. Uh, who are dying or dead out of new births, out of, out of persons um, having now gone through um, transitions in terms of sexual identity, um, persons who are struggling with the uh, faith claims in their own communities, faith communities. Um, to, to hear that, it's as if uh, you're just walking in the midst of holy ground. And um, I, I do not have, or I did not have many experiences of that in a church setting um, where I had most experienced that personally was either in the classroom where I taught, which is a seminary, and so I'm very fortunate uh, to have that context are in my office where students would come and 
really unburden themselves about what's going on with them. Um, but it occurs in the academy in a way that's even different than a classroom setting. Uh, the way in which you're able to persist with a concern over an extended period of time, especially in the two-year academy, um, such that I just uh, found it a gift to be invited uh, to, to speak. But to me, it, personally, I was saying yes as a gift to myself um, mm. and, and being in an environment that was uh, intended for my own formation. Well, I know that for me personally, you were faculty at uh, the first five day that I attended um, mm. long before I was academy staff. And then of course I've been able to be with you at advisory board meetings and then as part of my two year as well. Um, and have sensed that uh, there's this beautiful relationship between giving and receiving, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there's something about you giving your wisdom, sharing that with us, but then also your ability to receive the wisdom and beauty that comes from the community just makes that relationship mm -hmm. really profound in my experience. So mm -hmm. thanks for giving some words to that. Uh, I listened recently to uh, you talk um, and have a conversation on another podcast, The Heart of the Enneagram, and one that you had, had pointed me toward. And um, something that you said in that has stayed with me. And I want to, of course, quote you here and then maybe talk a little bit more about this. But you say, um, rigid expectations of how people ought to be fails relationships. And you said this, of course, in the context of talking about reconciliation and the current uh, context in which we find ourselves of um, this pandemic um, of COVID and the pandemic of white supremacy and seeing, of course, protests and uprisings and awakening and reawakening uh, to the evils of white supremacy. Um, and that line, I wrote it down and it's right here in my journal because I find that I often struggle with that. I have rigid expectations of how I think people ought to be. And when I really go deep with that, I realize that it's the rigid expectations that I have for myself mm. <laughs> that I'm being really hard on myself. And so um, I just, I wonder if you would just say a little bit more about that here, um, about what, what does it look like um, to free ourselves of these rigid expectations and how does that hang out with, with justice and, mm. and with what is right? Mm -hmm. Well, um, for me personally, it's, been liberating at two levels. One being, um, well, no, let, let, me, let me change that. It's been liberating for me on three levels. <laughs> uh, one is um, the expectations I have of individuals in interpersonal relationships. And uh, 
recognizing how you have a very narrow um, <laughs> a very very uh, narrow access to friendship when you have a, a set of criteria that all of your friends must meet be that in terms of their um, political um, perspective, their um, educational achievement, their racial identity, their um, sexual orientation, um, their uh, sort of cultural upbringing. Um, and it, it, I think, came to me when I looked around and saw the diversity of friends that I had. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a matter of, oh, I got the insight about how uh, the narrow works against me. It was more a matter of I had been establishing friendships, uh, all kinds of friendships, and uh, the diversity of those personalities. You know, there, there are some friends with whom you're able to engage in, in deep, deep conversation, and you feel as if they are receptive to the outpouring of your heart as you are receptive to theirs. Uh, and then there are friends who just want you to listen. And so um, there isn't the mutuality that is uh, such a delight, let's say, in another friendship, but it's still a friendship. And, and it has its own bases of bonding uh, that is to be embraced and appreciated. Uh, sometimes there are aspects of these friendships you laugh about. There are other aspects of the friendship you may lament. But, um, you know, I, I, I recognize uh, how different friendships can be. Uh, and how much a blessing they can be, as well as how much a challenge they can be. But I feel as if my own life, my own heart has expanded with that kind of diversity, that kind of, of fullness of range of friends. So there's the interpersonal. Um, there is also the social. And... Um, the extent to which uh, I can appreciate uh, the diversity of this world, <laughs> um, the God-created diversity of this world, as well as perhaps um, some aspects of diversity outside of, you know, our innate qualities of, of race or sex or, or you know, uh, gender or, or other things, but, but just the way in which people think and believe, even perhaps the God-lamented diversities of this world, yeah. um, to, to appreciate that diversity, even when you recognize that there are some elements of it that are a real struggle in light of how people uh, think and feel um, that not only uh, run counter to how I think and feel, but are actually perhaps even a threat to my existence. <laughs> and how might I 
uh, understand um, seeing sisters and brothers who at the same time uh, can easily be counted as enemies uh, and who perhaps do not even count me among their, their being their brother uh, who are very dismissive of me. And it, it's a freeing of the heart to um, not have to put people in, you know, the categories of being embraced or dismissed um, to uh, it, there's, there's a lowering of the anxiety about the kind of difference one will be engaging uh, and to keep the heart open uh, and receptive uh, the willingness to be in conversation, the willingness to hear people's fears and anger, um, the desire to sustain conversation in a way that might lead us into a process of reconciliation, to have some sensitivity to the kind of life experience that some people have had that perhaps has led them to this kind of of um, conclusion or this 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 way of of living, um, it it has enabled me to really be, I think, available to uh, life, and not just uh, that narrow uh, group of people who with whom I resonate in terms of thinking and commitments and, and uh, you know, the way in which if we had the opportunity, we'd try to construct this whole social order differently. Um, my, my life has, I think, been freed to engage life. And it's also been a blessing to me to, um, I think, encounter... Uh, and even establish relationships uh, in surprising with people who who are surprising in um, presenting themselves beyond you know those initial ways in which you categorize someone as aligning with you or not. Um, so it, it's it's enabled me, as uh, Saint Benedict said, you know, to run with an expanded heart, mm-hmm. uh, and that's been a blessing to me. And and I think the third way would be uh, how I am able to both um, acknowledge and embrace uh, those aspects of myself that may be at odds with other aspects of myself uh, and discover uh, that um, I come to a greater fullness not by working at, you know, expunging <laughs> the things that I don't like. But how do I cultivate a way of engaging, uh, accepting? Uh, there are some matters that clearly are ones for transformation. There are other things that perhaps are not changing um, as I would like or at, at the pace that I would like. But um, I, I don't want to give my energies to simply 
dealing with the difference in a way that fails cultivating and nurturing the heart that is um, to be available to friends and enemies. When I attended the five day uh, where you were faculty, this was in, I think, 2014. So gosh, six years ago now, but uh, I remember you invited us in one of the times of silence to, I think, write a letter to our enemy. Mm -hmm. And Ooh, that was, uh, I mean, I still kind of get a body uh, reaction to that because it took me, I was really grateful for the silence because it took me some time to really sit there and allow the silence to do its work with me on who I really needed to write that letter to. Um, how did I understand enemy and, and sort of my own denial and that I even had enemies, <laughs> um, right? And um, what, that, what that looked like and what it felt like, and that's still with me today. So, um, yeah, I would be remiss if I did not uh, bring up, of course, Howard Thurman in talking with you. Um, I think I know uh, anyone who's encountered you uh, has also in some way encountered Howard Thurman. And so I just first want to ask, uh, what drew you to Howard Thurman and, and your study of him, your work with him, uh, and why? Mm -hmm. um, I heard Thurman speaking at a conference he was the closing keynote speaker. And Claire, it took me to a place that I had not been in hearing a speaker. I, I found myself uh, just feeling um, that he as a speaker was perhaps 180 degrees away from what I was anticipating and hearing about Howard Thurman, that being, uh, you know, I, I this, this was a, a season where uh, matters of black power and black theology were being articulated with uh, fervor. This is, and, and Thurman's way of speaking was 180 degrees away from that kind of, um, uh, animated energy, though Thurman has his own way of being animated, and the energy comes forth with a whole different tone. Um, it was a conference in which we were um, very much uplifting the prophetic role of the Black church in terms of uh, addressing uh, issues of injustice, and Thurman spoke to that but also spoke about the significance of the church attending to uh, its own inability to live up to the calling of the faith. So there's this critical note in a conference where everyone's in a more of a celebrative mood. And um, the, the way in which he talked about these matters and himself it was as if he had opened his hearts to us. And so again, there's this, you know, this sacred moment of an exposed heart um, that is uh, certainly in some way um, 
created by words, but it goes much deeper than words. And I found myself listening to him have an experience that when I went up to my hotel room, it, you know, it just continued. I, it, uh, it was a time in my life when I was very shy and I felt very fortunate to be able to get a room in this particular hotel because it was crowded and it was infested with roaches. And I felt like, oh my, I, I, if I go down and complain, I'll be without a room in, in New right. York City. And, you know, that's a worse fate than dealing with a roach here and there. But, you know, I, there I was in the room and I found myself just, you know, I'd look at a roach and I would, I would think about the oneness of the roach in me. And so, you know, here we were occupying this wow. room together for which I'm the only one paying for it. But, you know, it was just a, a transition like I had not experienced before. And so I carried that over into reading everything I could uh, from Thurman and about Thurman. And it all the more suggested to me that um, this engagement with Thurman was more than uh, an event. It, the event... Uh, spoke to something deep in me. And I, and I couldn't even at that particular time uh, name all of what was occurring, but it spoke to mm -hmm. me. And I, in some ways, I think my interest in Thurman was to better identify what, what is that. And so over time, what I experienced from Thurman first, just, just wanting to get to know him. And so um, long before Thurman was a subject of scholarship for me, I wrote him and asked to have a visit with him. And he said, yes. So I went out to San Francisco and spent a day just visiting with him. And I've always been grateful that the relationship started um, out of a sense of friendship uh, rather than uh, out of a sense of scholarship. Yeah. Um, and I think this... Um, goes back to what I was saying about my home uh, uh, environment and church environment, um, and especially the way in which my father uh, understood himself as a teacher, because in Furman, uh, there is this profound respect for knowledge and study. <laughs> and as I explained to you early, that was an essential part of my own upbringing. Uh, so uh, Thurman, Thurman's commitment uh, to that was evident in, of course, the sources he quoted, the more you know about his background in terms of having read every book in the Morehouse Library when he was a student there. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way in which he was integrating all kinds of disciplines, literature, science, uh, theology, um, looking at the mystics and, and the various expressions of the Christian faith, um, was, was also resonating with my own educational interest in uh, interdisciplinary ways of coming to truth. Um, and he also brought together this uh, way of both uh, honoring the, the personal engagement with faith. Um, I, I, would, I could use the pietistic way of looking at faith, even though that gets 
misunderstood so often that I'm hesitant to use it mm -hmm. without some time for explanation in terms of what <laughs> I mean by that. But, but there is a piety in Thurman, a, 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 an understanding of what it means to be personally devoted in the pursuit of, of what is true, what is of God, uh, uh, who God is in our midst, and this attention to how that kind of pursuit uh, is um, calling us to the issues of justice in the larger communal uh, sense of, of justice. Um, that, that, that spoke to me in, in a way in which I felt as if I had found a teacher that um, was pulling together um, these, these strands in ways that spoke to me, especially because as a, as a black man in America, he was taking so seriously how the history of black people in this country was related to uh, whatever we were to uh, become as, as a people of the Christian faith, um, in honoring the Christian faith uh, in ways that also honored um, our right to be treated right. <laughs> and and uh, those are elements. Uh, I had wonderful, wonderful professors, but in, in seminary, in college and in seminary, mm -hmm. none of them were African-American. Uh, and many of them, I think, helped to provide the fertile ground for appreciating Thurman. So I'm, I want to give credit where credit is due. And, and I, yeah. I honor, um, if not all of those teachers, most of those teachers in terms of the way in which they spoke to my own mind and my own heart. But it was, it was in Thurman that I felt, uh, here is someone... Um, to whom I do not have to explain my own history in terms of how it relates to the kind of theological, spiritual, uh, personal uh, way in which um, our faith is, can be understood. Yeah. Yeah. What's one of the, most important things we need to remember from Thurman's teaching right now for this particular time that we find ourselves in? Mm, mm. Um, Thurman uh, was convinced, and, and you get this especially in perhaps his most read book, um, Jesus and the Disinherited. Thurman was convinced that the love ethic was the means by which we are most faithful as disciples of Jesus, um, that it's, it's an ethic that relates to not just who we are with people we like, <laughs> but 
also who we are called to be with people who are even identified as enemy. And he writes about the understandable responses of fear and deception and hate. Uh, he's not dismissing those as emotions that people feel in realities of injustice, but he speaks in a very, for me, convincing way about the love ethic being the most uh, faithful and I would say effective response to um, the injustice as well as um, to those emotions that, that those other emotions that surface that really long-term do not serve us, do, do not enable us to arrive at the kind of community into which God is calling us. If, if we're able to, I think, hear that message and wrestle with it um, and try to understand what it means in terms of our uh, relationships, I, I think we will find ourselves um, not looking for cheap reconciliation. Uh, a reconciliation where we all come together, we say we respect one another, we are quick to put behind us the injustices and the pain that is felt, and we just want to move on liking one another. That, that's, that is not only uh, not the way in which I think reconciliation occurs, but if that's, the, if that's your envisioning for reconciliation, it's likely that the whole process of reconciliation is somehow or another going to be felt by you as um, failing <laughs> um, because it, it doesn't run that course. And I think you've heard me say that uh, personally, I have in some sense uh, been less uh, ready to speak about um, reconciliation, let's have reconciliation, than the value of, of what I believe to be the reconciling process. Yeah. So how am I willing to be engaged in the reconciling process and to identify the process itself as that which is um, um, speaking in a healing way to my heart and in a healing way to the relationships that are um, in some ways expressed by way of alienation or outright antagonism? How how might I be so engaged in the reconciling process that I'm not just in it with the uh, anticipation of, well, we can be done with this and now we'll be reconciled and we'll be happy together. <laughs> how, might, how might I come to see the process as a place in a time of joy, see the process as the place and the time where I'm called to be, as the process itself is my contribution to the future. And, um, and that the, the challenges of the process, the anger that gets expressed, the kind of accusations that get placed upon me, the difficulties, of, all of this is a way in which I am, I am giving myself 
to the struggle and we claim ourselves to be a people of Israel's struggle. I'm giving myself to the struggle of being a person of God so that we might be a people of God. And I uh, feel that Thurman's insights, I think, uh, help us in that way. Uh, and, and once we realize, once, once we, we recognize how we're called to be in this struggle, um, I think we will find ourselves um, emboldened by the wisdom that so many persons have about the issues of struggle um, that we were created to, to be in. I pause here to highlight a book from Upper Room Books for the upcoming Advent season called Blue Christmas. Here's what Upper Room Books has to say about it. Advent this year will be unlike any we've ever experienced. And before we can put 2020 behind us, we will expectantly walk through Advent toward the celebration of Jesus's birth, all while living in this socially distanced world. Many people will be blue this Christmas because they are far from or grieving the loss of loved ones. As we face the stressors of the pandemic, a contentious presidential election, and the hard truths of systemic racism, we long for the Holy One to be among us. How can we find light and hope in this unprecedented year? You're invited to join Blue Christmas author Todd Outcult and The Upper Room as we seek to find the light in a season of shadows. Each day, participants will reflect on the hope of the season, and each week, there will be live online worship experiences and sessions with Outcalt himself. Visit urelearning.upperroom.org and use code ACADEMY to get 50% off the e-course and to receive a free copy of the book, Blue Christmas. So in Thurman's Essential Writings, you write in the introduction, um, or, you, or you include a quote from Thurman about his uh, grandmother. And, you know, years ago when I read this, uh, I underlined this, and then it just kind of stood out to me. Um, but he says, I learned more about the genius of the religion of Jesus for my grandmother than from all the men who taught me all the Greek and all the rest of it, because she moved inside the experience of the religion of Jesus and lived out of that kind of center. So talk to us a little bit about the embodied faith that Thurman is pointing to here uh, with his grandmother Mm -hmm. and why that kind of embodied faith uh, is the faith <laughs> that, that, that Jesus uh, also embodied and that Jesus calls us to. Yes. Well, his grandmother, um, a former slave, mm-hmm. um, in so many uh, times in Thurman's life was a source of renewal for him as as Thurman expresses it she could tell when the water in our wells was low and she had her way of of speaking to us um, that brought us back to ourselves and um, you know he he often tells the story that his grandmother uh, would tell them 
where just her whole countenance changed in telling of it. And she spoke of the slave preacher who would uh, come and, and speak to the slaves about being faithful to the masters. And there was a listening, but she said the, the there was another slave preacher who spoke to us who really was the one who led us and who, who uh, gave our spirits the lift that they needed. And, and this slave preacher would end every sermon saying, you are not slaves. You are not niggers. You are God's children. And Thurman would say that when she did this, there would be this straightening of her back <laughs> as she came to those final words. And in that, um, you hear Thurman um, articulating not just a memory of his grandmother, but a memory of his grandmother that spoke deeply to his own need. And understanding himself as a child of God in the midst of an environment that in many ways was um, denying that reality or, or uh, failing to act justly <laughs> to uh, his needs as a child as well as to as a man. Uh, recognizing all of that, uh, these were, were words that, that continually reminded him of who he was, and he understood that definition of him was not given to him by his environment. That definition of him was, in, was given to him by God. His, his, his grandmother uh, was a messenger of that uh, insight, that, that word. And for Thurman, it, it was more than her simply remembering um, what the slave preacher said, but she intervened in community realities where he lived, uh, where other people were afraid to deal, for example, with a man who was armed and mad. <laughs> and, and they came to Thurman's grandmother to come and intervene because they all felt threatened for themselves as well as for the man. And she's the one who went and called him out and, and disarmed this man in a way in which the community was at ease. She was the one when the deacons of his church uh, really felt that perhaps he was not ready for membership in the church, baptism and membership. And she was the one who intervened with the deacons and uh, reminded them that, um, you know, preachers come and go, but the deacons stay here in this community, in this church. And she was very clear that um, she would have to contend with, they would have to contend with her if they were going to be failing her grandson's readiness uh, to be part of the life of the church. So Thurman witnessed her as a strong, um, committed uh, woman of faith who not only lived the message of being God's child, but being uh, a child who, who could advocate for what was right, <laughs> who could advocate for uh, bringing healing in the life of the community. And uh, it, it was the message, but it was also the messenger. And, and with that, to, 
uh, I think Thurman took seriously uh, how it was important for him to also be uh, authentic to the message as well as Jesus the messenger who he claimed to be the guide for his life. Um, this, this idea of, uh, in Thurman's later life, he would use the term, the sound of the genuine. How one hears the sound of the genuine, how one gives expression to the sound of a genuine, that, that you can find um, anywhere, the possibility of finding it anywhere. But, and when you hear it and you respond to it appropriately, you really come to yourself as God intended you to come to yourself. And, and he heard the sound of the genuine in his grandmother. He heard the sound of the genuine in people who were not Christians. He heard the sound of the genuine in people who were not of his uh, race. Um, and it's, it's the sound of the genuine on which I think Thurman is always on the hunt. And, um, and I think one of the expansive aspects of his own life was to uh, open his, his own self to the relationships that would enable him to receive that and to respond to that and to have the kind of spiritual awareness to truly, truly hear that. Um, because, you know, we, we all too quickly, I think, discount the sound of the genuine when we discount uh, persons we think are not worthy of carrying the message. Yeah. Where are you hearing the sound of the genuine right now? Mm. You mean in these times? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I hear it in the protests for justice. Um, I hear it in those people who are willing to not just uh, jeopardize their careers, but actually um, find themselves out of work because they have uh, been willing to voice what is true about uh, the situations of the pandemic. Uh, this has occurred with many people in the healthcare industry who have been asked to silence, to be silent about uh, the threat and about these very, um, I think, um, just, <laughs> um, just uh, unworthy um, responses shaped into public policy uh, uh, around the matters of the uh, pandemic. But, but they've been willing to to speak out about that, and and as I said, to do more than risk their jobs, but to lose their jobs about that. And I hear the sound of the genuine. There, I, I, I hear the sound of the genuine in people who aren't necessarily involved in protests, but who are willing to take stock of their own 
um, personal way of being indifferent to issues of racial injustice and uh, their willingness to confront the fact that that indifference did not honor them and did not honor their history. Uh, and you can hear this in, in their voice as an expression of lament. You know, it's, it's a very painful thing, but it's also liberating. Um, the kind of energy you have to put into not just the construction of a lie, but the sustenance of a lie is extraordinary consciously or unconsciously is extraordinary. It's, it's not only a um, distortion of history, um, as it, it's, it involves the distorting of um, textbooks, it, the distorting of whole educational systems and the way in which they will tell a story, a distorting of, you know, who other people were who have made a difference in our lives, a, a distorting of uh, who are heroes, a distorting of what symbols um, merit uh, communal celebration, um, and how easy it is to decide that um, how easy it is to decide that something like slavery. Uh, is so long past that it doesn't merit the kind of uh, attention or uh, assessment in terms of its ongoing repercussions, or that it it is um, it's it's just the kind of thing people need to get over. <laughs> uh, these, uh, you know, the energy one puts into uh, looking at at our history and looking at life, not only past, but present, um, is fails the kind of creative energies that enable us to be a people of truth and to be going forward into uh, the whatever days we have in front of us as a people who are honoring um, the future by honoring the truth that comes out of the past. And I, I think um, if, you, if you ever want to be moving toward uh, a future that fails us, which has its own way of being a dystopian future, uh, you in many ways neglect being stewards of the past, the stories, the meanings, the ways in which they live in our midst. Um, you neglect being stewards of the past and you are too ready to allow others that role who do not merit it. wonder if you might just uh, tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. I think I, I heard um, about a, a manuscript that you're working on. And so I'd love for you just to tell us about that. And, um, and then just if you have a final 
uh, blessing or story or scripture that you would offer us as, as we close? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, working on uh, a book-length manuscript that is uh, addressing the reality of hope and how there are understandings of hope that fail us, how there are understandings of hope that are frightening and actually which cause people to resist hope because too often we think of hope as basically um, that which is to come about because of what we're wishing. (laughs) Um, And there's an understanding of hope that demands that um, our environmental realities change before we will be hopeful. And I think those those ways of 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 perceiving hope uh, actually work against what hope itself is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, like love, hope is a force that is both within us and outside of us. Um, can you weigh it? No, but can you weigh love? No, but it it's 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 present and it it is often present in in circumstances where you think love and hope certainly can't abide in situations this despairing so how might we come to uh pursue the meaning of of hope in our midst and become a people of hope uh in all the circumstances of life and not just speak of hope as something that will be experienced when things get better. Um, And uh, the subtitle of what I'm working on, or this working subtitle, is uh, Spirituality of Beloved Community. Because I don't think you can really understand the fullness of hope and the work of hope without having uh, the vision of beloved community and how it will govern the ways in which we are living our lives in a daily way. And there are practices, of course, for beloved community that are essential to uh, being a people who are uh, working on its behalf. Um, So those are things that I'm hoping to address in ways that a reader might then uh, understand on on a daily basis this I can do as a person of hope on behalf of beloved community. This I can do. And, and I think one begins to find that one's hopefulness is more deeply experienced as one's um, sense of the call of beloved community and the presence of beloved community and the work of beloved community is available to us. And beloved community is experienced as one is um, more deeply aware of the hopefulness that uh, is both within us and, and surrounding us in other people and I think even surrounding us in nature itself. I think uh, God has been so generous with this force of hope that it's, um, 
it's, it's pervasive. It's something that we actually are never without, uh, even in those uh, conditions that are seemingly beyond uh, the reach of hope. Hope is there. And I, I want to bring forth the testimony of people who, are, uh, who have experienced that, who are our teachers, who can indicate to us um, that uh, what, what, what has sustained them and what has enabled them to not lose joy in the midst of the most vile circumstances of life, as well as just the, the difficulties of life, is available to us for, for us every day. And, and that's not to in any way... Um, diminish or to in some way eliminate the full uh, emotional landscape of anger or distress or all the other things that I think are a proper reaction to uh, conditions that are in some way threat. It's not to eliminate any of that, but, but it is to indicate that in any and all situations in which we find ourselves, we are not bereft of hope. There is a, um, a reading that Thurman put in a book he edited uh, from Olive Schreiner. Um, this white South African woman mm. who uh, by many is considered a uh, an important voice in feminism, but also an important voice in matters of liberation. Um, here he is, the editor of this book, because he found her to be quite a mentor of himself. And uh, there's a passage that he will often quote that I continually think about in terms of defining this journey that I'm on. And uh, I, would, I would read it to you if you would like. Yes, please. Olive Schreiner writes, the new mother, when she looks down at the little head upon her breast, whispers in her heart, oh, may you seek after truth. If anything I teach you be false, May you throw it from you and pass it on to higher and deeper knowledge than I ever had. If you are an artist, may no love of wealth or fame or admiration and no fear of blame or misunderstanding make you ever paint with pen or brush an ideal or a picture of external life otherwise than as you see it. If you become a politician, may no success for your party or yourself or the seeming good of even your nation ever lead you to tamper with reality and play a diplomatic part. In all the difficulties which will arise in life, fling yourself down on the truth and cling to that. As a drowning man in a stormy sea flings himself onto a plank, and clings to it, knowing that whether he sink or swim with it, it is the best he has. If you become one of thought and learning, 
oh, never with your left hand be afraid to pull down with your right hand what your right hand has painfully built up through the years of thought and study. If you see at last that it is not founded on that which is. Die poor, unloved, unknown, a failure, but shut your eyes to nothing that seems to them the reality. Um, I think um, in our efforts to, to live this, we will all be the better for it. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy Resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And if you have questions about the work of anti-racism or about this particular podcast episode, please email us at academy at upperroom.org. Please give a gift to support the work of the Academy today. Visit academy.upperroom.org and click on the orange donation button in the top right-hand corner. This podcast and all of our work of transformation, healing, and love exist because of you. Thank you. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches dances, listens, learns, and sings along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.